studying the Bible is an act of worship. It's not the habit or the practice of an elite few. It is the practice of children as much as adults. And I think that is a remarkable thing about the early Irish churches that they wanted to put in the hands of children as young as seven copies of the scripture to learn and to memorize and to hold and to own. So the scripture is something that we should treasure, value, study. It is the word of God. It is the voice of Christ to his church. And scripture has to have an outflow. And I think the early Irish church sensed that. It wasn't just accumulating head knowledge. It was truly about seeing people transform. That voice you just heard is the voice of Shane England. Shane is one of the teaching elders at his church in Ennis, Ireland. Shane was formerly a missionary in Ukraine and a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary. Shane was on the podcast last year, and I so much enjoyed what he had to share and his insights that I said I need to have him on again, and Shane was gracious enough to take me up on that. So I hope that you will enjoy this episode, and there will be more to come with Shane later this season as well. Stay tuned to the end for some closing thoughts, but I hope that you enjoy and are blessed by this episode of Theology for the People. Welcome to Theology for the People. This is Nick Cady, and I'm joined today by Shane England. Hey, Shane. Hi, Nick. How are you? Doing great. Shane, you were on my last season, and I really enjoyed talking with you. And so I recently reached out to see if you'd be willing to do some more, and you had some great ideas. And so I'm excited to to do a couple episodes with you this season. Great. Thanks, Nick. So Shane, in this episode, I wanted to talk to you about Bible study from the Irish monastic period. So like Bible study in the dark ages. Yeah. So, you know, when I think about Bible study, I, I wonder, you know, a lot about the dark ages and like, what was the approach to Bible study? So maybe you could just kind of start us off by, by giving us maybe some perspective on the dark ages and how the Irish context fit into that. Certainly. So amongst historians, the, the very concept of the dark ages is somewhat controversial. But uh, the periods that I would be referring to where Irish monasticism took root would be uh, between the 5th and 10th centuries. And that was a period of a lot of political and economic instability in Western Europe uh, in, as a whole. It wasn't really a golden age of uh, church activity or church scholarship for some. And Ireland kind of was outside of a lot of the, the problems that the rest of Western Europe was facing during that time, because Ireland was never part of the Roman empire. And so when that collapsed and the wars in Europe that emerged and the emergence of smaller kingdoms and fighting, uh, Ireland escaped all that. So Ireland became briefly a a place of refuge for scholars in Europe, a place where study was encouraged and supported and valued. And there was the, the peace and freedom to do that for a few centuries, at least. And obviously if you know Irish history, uh, it then entered into its own turbulent time. And so much of that was destroyed and lost, but for a brief uh, moment, Ireland was a, a shining light on the very Western edge of Europe. Hmm. Yeah. So give us some perspective on where you live and why are you interested in this topic? So I am living in the west of Ireland in a, in a small village uh, 
called Newmarket on Fergus. And I, this is this is my my home. This is where I grew up. I grew up in a, a town not far from here called Ennis. So the town that I grew up actually began as a monastery. So um, it the whole the whole town emerged uh, as a monastic settlement, which is quite common in Ireland. The first urban development in Ireland really was from mon- monasteries. Mm. So my town was no different. And I'm currently serving in a church in Ennis where I'm one of the teaching elders. And so I do have a passion for church history. I have a passion for the Bible, for the community that I live in. And the, the story of Irish, the early Irish church is fascinating for me because obviously it is connected to my home and people that I grew up with, but it's also an unusual story. It's quite unique when compared to the rest of Western Christendom and how that developed. Yeah, well, tell us some of that story, that unique story. Like, how did Irish monks approach, let's say, Bible study differently than other Christian traditions at their time? Yeah, so the first thing to note straight off is that Ireland, when it received Christianity, did not have a tradition of literacy in the same way that the, the Roman Empire did. So in the Roman Empire, you had Greek and Latin. The church, as a religion of the book, I didn't have to adjust an awful lot in that context because literacy amongst the, the better educated was esteemed and respected and seen as a culturally valuable asset. But in Celtic Ireland, religious knowledge was deliberately not written down as a means of control. So in, in Celtic religions, the Druids and their disciples would deliberately not write down any of their their spiritual or uh, mystical knowledge in case it came into the hands of an uninitiated person or that they would lose control of that knowledge. So it was carefully guarded and purposely never written down. Um, that's the testimony of, of Julius Caesar uh, when he was living in Gaul and observed a lot of the, the tribes oh, in that area of France. He noticed that that was one of the particulars of the Celtic religion was that it avoided um, writing the sacred knowledge. So when Christianity came with, with the first missionaries in the fifth century, people like Palladius and Patrick, and we spoke about that previously, mm-hmm. they came with a book, the, the scriptures, and that was a radical paradigm shift for Ireland. So to, to get to the stage where, you know, within two centuries, Ireland was a, a desirable place to study and to go and learn theology, to come from a culture that didn't have any tradition of literacy or um, respect for the written word when it came to religion, it just shows how remarkable uh, a cultural shift occurred in Ireland. Mm. So the, the Irish monk studying the Bible has to overcome the fact that they have to learn a foreign language, the, the Latin. They have to learn a completely new way of um, communicating religious knowledge through books. They have to learn grammar. Um, and all of those things are massive struggles. And it is interesting that the, the Irish monastic communities, they would regard themselves as uh, sort of spiritual soldiers for Christ because of the hardship involved in, in amassing this knowledge, which was so alien and so difficult. Um, a lot of this knowledge is secondhand too. It's, it's by learning from other missionaries that came from Britain and Gaul. It's from reading books. It's by copying manuscripts. It's by trying to learn about the world of the Bible, which is completely alien to their own culture. So a monk in Syria or in Egypt would have far more cultural understanding of the world of the Bible than a 
Irish monastic living on an island in the Atlantic Ocean. Um, there were things in the Bible that they would have never seen or understood what they were. So all of these things um, are huge obstacles that they have to come over. And we do see a level of ingenuity and passion when it came to the Bible that produced things now that we would think are commonplace, but were invented by Irish monks as a means to help them overcome these obstacles. So one of the basic things they did at the first thing was they invented space between words hmm. because they were learning to read and read a foreign language that they never spoke. And so up until this time, manuscripts were written in what we call scriptio continua, which um, if you know about Bible manuscripts, that's typically how they are written as well. So it's a running text. There's no spaces between words. Now, when we read a book, there's spaces between words, but it was Irish monks that began that because they had to break up the Latin. They had to try and learn this foreign language. And so they introduced aids to the reader. They introduced things like capital letters, spaces between words. Even how they copied the manuscripts was designed to aid the reader to understand. Another thing that they did, which was completely revolutionary, is they introduced the first Bible maps, <laughs> which I think is so interesting. If you, if you have a Bible today and you go to the back pages, often you'll have a, a map of the Holy Land or a map of Israel under the 12 tribes. The Irish were the first uh, religious communities to do that because they had never been to Israel. They didn't know the, the Dead Sea and the Jordan. All they knew was how it was described in the Bible. And rather ingeniously, they laid out in their, in their biblical commentaries, there's a famous biblical commentary. It's given a German title because there's German scholars who discovered it. It's called Das Bibelwerk. But in that, in that uh, compendium, that Bible commentary produced by Irish monks, there is the first example of a map of the Holy Land as a biblical aid. So things like Jerusalem, cities of refuge, the tribal divisions, all these things that we would now expect to see in a Bible map was produced by people who had never been to Israel or didn't know anything about the Holy Land, but wanted to understand the world of the Bible. So they, they produced those aids to the reader, you could say. Um, so yeah, there was many things that they had to overcome, big obstacles. And Ireland is in many ways so far removed from, from easy access to manuscripts, to scholarship, to all those things like in big cities in Europe or North Africa that you would expect. For Irish people, it was, it was basically trying to do the best that they could with the resources that they had. But there was definitely a level of ingenuity and desire to, to under, understand the text that we, we don't even see at this stage in the rest of Europe. Um, and maybe it was because this was so precious to them. It was so new. It was so revolutionary that they had a, um, a desire to bring in these new uh, ways of understanding the text. So did those ways, I mean, um, a lot of those things, I think, fall into the category of observation of the text, right? Like trying to understand it. Yeah. But what about the interpretation of the text? I mean, how did these, how did their context and these things that kind of forced them into this way of looking at the Bible, did that shape at all the way that they interpreted scripture? Yeah. So in the Middle Ages, in Europe as a whole, there, there is quite a a broad spectrum of interpretation of the scriptures, much more so than we would see in the, in the early modern period in Europe, when, when much more of Christian theology is defined. And so there are, there is just quite a broad spectrum of different ways of approaching the texts. Um, some Irish interpreters of the texts, there's a guy called the Irish Augustine, Augustino Hibernicus, 
his approach is, is radically literal. He purposely eschewed any sort of allegorical or um, anagogical interpretations of the text. He actually tried to understand the text almost from a, from a naturalistic point of view, even trying to unpack miracles in scripture within the, the confines of natural law and trying to understand how God would work in time and space. And so a radically literalistic view of the Bible, which is very uncommon at that stage in Europe. But also we do have within Irish um, schools of theology, the, the, the classic four paths of scripture, you know, the historical or literal, the allegorical, uh, the anagogical, and the, um, the moral applications of scripture. We see those four ways of looking at the scripture applied. Um, and that's fairly typical at this time too, but, uh, just to give you an example. So how that would look, um, in Genesis two, we have the creation of Adam and Eve. And we have a very early Irish interpretation of that text going back to the eighth century, where there is obviously the literal interpretation of the text, which stresses that Adam was created from the dust of the earth and Eve was created from uh, his side. And then you have a allegorical interpretation, which stresses that the church likewise was created from the wound in Adam's side, the second Adam, Adam on the cross, Christ Jesus, when his side was pierced and the blood flowed in John's gospel, that that is the birth of the church. It comes from the side of Adam. Um, and then you have the, the, the sort of the, um, the mystical interpretation, which is that Christ will come again and say to his church, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, stressing like Paul does in Ephesians, the the connection between the, the, the mystery of the oneness of, of marriage between the man and his wife and the union of the church with Christ. And then you have the, the moral application. And this, this moral application is very interesting. It actually influenced Thomas Aquinas later on in the 13th century, but the, the Irish scholars were the first to come up with this moral interpretation of the creation of Eve from Adam's side. They said that Eve was not created from the, the foot bone, lest she be inferior, nor from the head bone, lest she be, you know, um, superior, but she was created from the rib, which is the guardian of the heart. And the Irish exegete said that is because she was created as his equal and the bone that closest guards the heart is a sign of the love that the husband has for his wife. So that was the moral application. In other words, that was how the Christian living in Ireland was supposed to apply a text that is sort of innocuous as Genesis 2 to their life in a culture that has to be said that didn't value women. I mean, the, the, the currency in Celtic Ireland was known as a cumul, which was a female slave. Hmm. So that again is showing the radical cultural shift within Ireland that was occurring at this time where people would speak about women in this way as being the equal to the man because of their creation and how, you know, the man is supposed to protect and love for his wife. Um, so yeah, we do see all those aspects of interpretation. We also see a strong emphasis even on some of the more technical aspects of interpreting the Bible that are not as stressed in Western Europe at this time. And those would be textual criticism and even some, um, some attempts to understand the Greek text of the New Testament, which are highly unusual in these centuries and scholars today are still unsure as to the extent of how much Greek was known in Ireland, but there emerged two 
leading scholars from the Irish monastic community that later went to Europe to teach. And one of those was uh, John Scotus, Eurogena, um, whose, whose Greek was probably the best in Western Europe at that time. And he actually translated a number of the Greek patristic fathers into Latin for the church. And also another guy called Sidonius Scotus, who copied Greek biblical manuscripts, commentated on them, translated them into Latin. And how they learned that Greek is very unusual. It, uh, even contemporaries at the time, the, the papal librarian, a guy called Athanasius, not the, the famous bishop of uh, Alexandria, but the, uh, a ninth century librarian from the Vatican, uh, he commented that it was a mystery how a barbarian from the edge of Europe, which was shrouded in darkness, could emerge from that with the, you know, to found knowledge of, of Greek. It was a mystery how this, how this was even possible. And we do have the remains of Greek New Testament manuscripts even today um, that are used by, you know, the Nestle Allen's critical texts that were written by Irish monks. Some of them even have Irish poetry in the margins. Um, so that is mysterious, how they actually gained that knowledge. Was it through Greek scholars coming to Ireland? Was it through um, church fathers like Jerome? It, it is somewhat mysterious. But again, they applied themselves incredibly to tasks that were largely forgotten at that time in Western Europe. Hmm. Well, yeah, that's so much and so many things I want to ask about and comment on. So anagogical, just for our listeners' sake, refers to the mystical interpretation, correct? Yeah, like looking to the end almost. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. And, and I think that people aren't necessarily always clear on like what is meant by a mystical interpretation. Is there any way that you could summarize what that means in a brief way? Yeah, I, so the anagogue would be like a step up into the so, or almost like an ascent into the spiritual realm. So you're trying to look at a biblical text and say, where does this lead us into the mystery of God? How does this actually fit in to the unveiling of God's mystery? And often that would lead us to the end, you know, the, the, the vision of God, the, the union of Christ with his church. And so often biblical texts were um, not only applied to how we should live or how they help us understand the Old Testament, but also how did they reveal to us the unfolding mystery of who God is mm -hmm. in himself. And so with the creation of Eve, it's the purpose was to remind the Christian reader that, you know, yes, Eve was created from Adam and that does speak of Christ's sacrifice. And it also reminds a man how he should view his wife, but it also points somewhat mysteriously to a day when Christ will say to us, you are bone of my bone of flesh of my flesh, which is when Christ comes again for his bride. So it's, it's trying to look at all aspects of time, past, present, and future um, in a text. Now, obviously that became very controversial, you know, within the, the Reformation as a, a valid exercise. Some would have questioned that as um, somewhat uh, taking liberties with the text. Um, but in a medieval setting, it was regarded as the, the best model that they had from some of the most respected teachers that they had. And yes, it obviously, there, there are limits to how that, that uh, process can work. But um, the, uh, the goal of an Irish monk learning the text is to apply it to all aspects of his life as he, as he tried to wrestle with the text. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you had mentioned the technical aspects of looking at mm. the text in regard to textual criticism. And, um, yeah. you know, it's funny when I've used that term with people, I always have to like explain myself very quickly before they think I mean something that I don't mean. 
just because it yeah, sounds like, like criticizing the Bible. Exactly. <laughs> or or the other part is yeah. that they'll immediately think, oh, textual criticism is like what they did in Germany, for example, under yeah. Wellhausen and others who looked at the Bible yeah. and said, you know, the Bible yeah. isn't actually written by these people, or it doesn't actually tell true mm. events, and they're kind of trying to pick it apart. So maybe could you give us a, a description yeah. of what you mean by textual criticism and why sure. actually analyzing Greek text was unique in Ireland at that time? Yeah, great question. So I think we can kind of confuse two sort of schools of um, biblical studies here. One would be source criticism, which is what you were kind of describing there with 19th century German theology with Wellhausen and these guys looking at basically deconstructing the text of the Bible. Um, textual criticism, though, is, is much more ancient than that. It's, it's one of the practices of the earliest scribes of the Bible, and it is the attempt to use the evidence of biblical manuscripts that you have in front of you to spot mistakes made by other scribes in copying the text and to correct them in the effort to produce the most accurate copy of a manuscript that you can. And yeah, it was unusual. Um, the Irish, the Irish monastic schools at this time, one of their heroes was Jerome, who, you know, is a, a fourth, fifth century church father who was a pioneer in many ways with, with text from criticism when he produced the Latin Vulgate Bible. And for early Irish Christians, they were aware that there were things like textual variants. They commented on them, um, you know, when they were, when they were uh, producing commentaries on biblical books, they would note if manuscripts in their possession had different readings and how those emerged typically through scribal error or assimilation with other texts. They didn't think that was something to be hidden. They, they spoke about it quite openly. Ireland also produced, um, double Psalters, which is another curious aspect of Irish monastic life. The, the Psalms were the essential book of scripture for the, for the monastic community. And we can talk about that maybe, but they also produced double Psalters. One was a copy of Jerome's Gallicanum, which was the Greek translation of the Psalms into Latin that Jerome produced. And on the facing page, they would have Jerome's Hebraicum, which was Jerome's translation directly from the Hebrew text into Latin. And those would be side by side. And alongside the text, they would have textual critical notes, noting differences of readings between the Greek and the Hebrew in the Old Testament. And so this was something that they really enjoyed and really saw as an act of worship um, at a time when churches in Western Europe are struggling even to find priests that can read. Mm -hmm. It's remarkable that an island that was known for, you know, a sort of a, a barbarous backwater was focusing on these technical aspects. I think it all goes back to the fact that the book was so radically new to the culture in Ireland. It was seen as part and parcel of the revelation of who God was, that this message brought by missionaries, uh, fearless men that faced persecution in, in a country that was beyond the controls of the Roman Empire. They brought with them a message in a book and that book, the, the main purpose of the book was to be open to all in contrast to the Druids who carefully guarded the secrets of the knowledge and only handed it down sometimes over a course of 30, 40 years to a disciple through oral tradition and ritual. The book was presented to people to be read and to, under, to understand it because it was the voice of God. And that's how the Irish church viewed 
those scriptures. And that's why they've spent so much time focusing on the minutia, the details, the access to the book. Because if you, if you look at how the Irish viewed scripture, looking at the book of Psalms in particular, um, they often will give their own headings to the individual Psalms. And the headings were often Vox Christi. This is the voice of Christ to the church. This is God speaking to us. This is Christ's words. So they viewed it as the revelation of God. And it was something profoundly sacred, but also something that they diligently um, labored over with a, a passion and a desire to make it known. And that's why students came from other parts of Europe at this time to avail of that study. And the Irish church was, I think, remarkably generous. Um, the English medieval historian, the Venerable Bede, I don't know if you're aware of him, but he wrote a famous history, a medieval history of the church, the English church. And so he lived around the, the year 800 or so, but he remarked that foreign students coming to Ireland for biblical studies were given free books and free accommodation. <laughs> so I like that. They had a sort of an international program for foreign students and it was fully covered by the monasteries. There was no fees paid. It was all provided. And I, I like that because they did have a, a sense of pride that they were part of a, of, a, of a universal church. They really did regard themselves not just as the Irish church, but as part of the universal church. And so they regarded their service not as something for Ireland exclusively, but for the body of Christ universally. And so that was something that they were also um, proud to be part of, is helping other people bring back to their countries the knowledge of scripture that they could get in Ireland. Yeah, that's fabulous. How much do you think that the average person in Ireland today is aware of this tradition? And then follow-up question to that would be like, like what, what is the sense that you have like as an Irish Christian today, like having this heritage? Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure how much we, our Irish people would be aware of this. Irish people would have a, a vague understanding from their school days of, of the, the golden age of Irish monasticism. Every kid learns about that in school. I think every Irish person would know about the great treasures of, of Irish culture that are in our national museum. And the centerpiece of that is a copy of the scriptures, the Book of Kells, mm -hmm. um, which is an incredibly detailed, illuminated gospel book. Um, so people would know about that, but, um, you know, how much they would know about the intricacies of, of biblical studies and all these things, I think very little, to be honest, I think, um, I'm not, I don't have a, I don't have a sociological survey to back this up, but I will say it anyway. I think from the things that I read concerning Ireland in the sixth and seventh century, I think the average Irish person in the dark ages knew more about the Bible than they do today. Mm. I think they would recognize the text of scripture much more clearly, and they would have been familiar much more with the, the great arc of scripture than Irish people living today, which I think is, is quite sad, but it is indicative of, of Western Europe as a whole. There is a, a biblical famine of sorts in our culture, and certainly people are, are moving further and further away from even nominal Christianity. And, Sadly, to return to a worldview that is much more aligned with pre-Christian Ireland um, than it is to the Ireland that we're talking about here in the 7th and 8th centuries. Mm -hmm. You know, I think a lot of people when they, and I would say myself in this as well, when they imagine like the, the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages, yeah. they, they would tend to think that really the it was the Reformation that brought us back to analyzing 
the Greek and Hebrew texts. I mean, like thinking about yeah. ad fontes, right? The uh, slogan right. of the Renaissance, which is getting back to the yes. sources. And, you know, think about like um, even Erasmus of Rotterdam, you know, his big work mm -hmm. of collecting the uh, original documents from Alexandria and things like that. And like that, that was the beginning of getting back to the Greek and uh, Hebrew texts as opposed to using the Latin Vulgate for yeah. study of scripture. But you're saying that the Irish were doing mm -hmm. that before it was cool, basically. Yeah, in a in a limited way, I think the Reformation went further than the early Irish church ever did. And that was with the pressing of vernacular translation. One of the mysteries to me is that the Irish church um, ended up producing the earliest vernacular writings in Europe. Hmm. So older than any French, Italian, English, German writings, we have Irish books. And they produced the earliest vernacular in Europe, and that was because of the influence of Christianity. So in Europe, the written languages were, in the Dark Ages, they were Latin, Greek, and Irish. Hmm. Irish people in Ireland were producing Irish uh, biblical commentaries in Irish. Uh, they were recording the, the stories, the oral traditions, the legends of their own people in Irish. But they never produced an Irish Bible. Part of that is the conservatism of the Irish church in that they wanted to preserve the Bible as they had received it, which was the Latin Bible of, of British and Gallic missionaries coming in the fifth century. Now they did heavily gloss or add notes in their Bibles. And the earliest examples of old Irish are actually found in Latin manuscripts where the biblical text uh, has loads of Irish translating the text and explaining the text in between the lines, so to speak. But yet they never went further. They never produced vernacular Bibles. And I think the Reformation with, you know, um, it went further than that and, and stressed the importance of that. Now, that's not to say that vernacular Bibles never occurred until the Reformation. They certainly did. But what we see in the Reformation is a passion for vernacular Bibles in English, in German, but also going back, like you said, at Fontes, to the Greek, to the Hebrew, to produce an accurate Bible in the local language. People like William Tyndale, people like Martin Luther. We don't see that in the, in the Irish medieval church. And that's a pity. It did have consequences. I think as a, as a culture has to rely on a translation over time um, that requires good schools and a stable society. And as war and, you know, um, conquest comes to Ireland in the 10th, 11th centuries, those schools can function. And the Bible then certainly becomes a closed book for Irish people in many ways. And that's, that is um, not a good legacy of the conservatism we did see in the Irish monastic church. But having said that, they, while things were going good, they, they did have a passion for the texts, um, which I think is admirable. So every, every young person going into a monastery, which was highly highly valued and prized at this time, even if you weren't going to pursue a religious life, if you were just going there for education, the very first book that you received to learn how to read and write was a copy of the Psalms. And we even have wax tablets found in a, in a bog in Ireland, going back to this period where we see a schoolboy's exercise written on the wax tablet, uh, writing out the Psalms. And as you got older, you would produce your own copy of the Psalms to keep. And often that was one of the most prized possessions for a, an Irish monk was his first copy of the Psalms that he used as a child, that he used um, growing up in the Christian faith to sing 
every day the hymns of the church and they would keep that with them. And we even have a poem. It's a, it's a poem that we found in a manuscript. And it's on a first reading, it seems to be a poem of an old man who has become reacquainted with a lover that he knew as a younger man. And he, he's describing her as beautiful and melodious and full of wisdom and full of uh, purity and how he taught, this woman taught him as a young man. And as you get to the end of the poem, you realize he's talking about a copy of the Psalms that he had written, that he has, you know, had been passed on to another person and passed on and passed on. And as an old man, he comes again to that early manuscript that he learned the, how to read and write and also how to sing the, the hymns of the church from the copy of the Psalms. So yeah, these things were, were certainly valued and treasured by Irish people. And sadly, you know, even though Ireland was producing manuscripts and all of this scholarship, we have less than 10, 10 or so manuscripts that emerge from all of this period that we're talking about. And almost all of those are in European libraries. The vast majority of the information that we have in Ireland was destroyed during the Viking Wars and the, the later wars of the Reformation. So a lot of this stuff is lost and the few fragments that we have are scattered far and wide, but they do give us a sense of the, of the great work that was done during this, this period. That's fascinating. So let me just ask you kind of the one final question, which would be, yep. what can we learn from the Irish monastic approach to Bible study that can be applied to our own spiritual practices today? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, obviously, we do want to stress that studying the Bible is an act of worship. It's not the habit or the practice of an elite few. It is, it is the practice of children as much as adults. And I think that is a remarkable thing about the, the early Irish churches that they wanted to put in the hands of children as young as seven copies of the scripture to learn and to memorize and to hold and to own. So the scripture is something that we should treasure, value, study, no matter how young or old we are, it is the word of God. It is the voice of Christ to his church. Um, and scripture has to have an outflow. And I think the early Irish church sensed that it wasn't just accumulating head knowledge. It was truly about seeing people transform. And one of the, one of the aspects we see this in the early Irish church is the development of what they call the Adam Kara, the soul friend. So um, at this time in medieval Europe, there is no, there is no sense of a, um, a fully developed sacrament of penance yet. That does come later on in the Middle Ages. So there's, there isn't the typical uh, sacrament of penance that we would maybe associate with later medievalism. But what we see in Ireland is instead of penance or an act of penance, we have a soul friend. It's, it's not someone to offer you absolution, but it's someone to, their sole focus and their sole job is to bring you the word of God. It's to bring you scripture in your struggles with sin, someone that you can confide in, someone that is a friend to your soul because they bring you the word of God. Um, and that, that's unique in, in Europe at this time. And that actually goes on to influence the Western church. But I think it is a, it's a good model of how we study the Bible in order to be a soul friend to the people in our church and in our community that we can um, bring them the, the healing ointment of scripture as it's described to the wounds that sin can leave on us. And so uh, an outflow, a, a use for scripture um, is certainly stressed in the early Irish church. And I think is definitely what we should see in mentorship and discipleship is that we are simply there to bring the word of God. Well, that's really good, Shane. And it feels like we're really just touching the tip of the iceberg. So but mm. thank you for introducing this, us to this topic. Is there anywhere where people who want to know more could go further with this? Um, 
Yeah, there's 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 not a lot of um, sort of books that will cover this in in any great detail. A lot of this is just research that I've done over the years, but I have a few articles on on different um, aspects of early Irish exegesis and interpretation of the Bible on my blog. Those are going back a good few years now, but um, that blog is anglanticusblogspot.com. If you want to check those out, there's a there's a few articles about this topic there, but it'd be a good place to start. Cool. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes, but perfect. Thanks so much, yeah. Shane, for your time today. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for listening to this episode of Theology for the People. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so yet. And could I ask that you go over to either Spotify or Apple Podcasts and give me a written review. When you do that, that helps other people discover this podcast through their algorithm. And if you were blessed by this episode, please share it with others. Word of mouth is, of course, the best way to grow the audience. And I believe that we're bringing important discussions to people, so I'd love it if you would help others to become part of the listening community. If you are interested in finding out about the book I've written or articles I've written on various topics, go check out my website, nickkady.org. That's N-I-C-K-C-A-D-Y.org. And I'll be with you again soon on the next episode of Theology for the People. God bless. Oh,